Welcome to the Virtual Real Estate Investing Podcast. Super pumped for our guest today. Frank, how you doing, man? Doing awesome. Just came out of another closing um, and get some cash into the business. So any day you do that is a good day. So I'm in a great mood. How about yourself? I'm good, man. I'm good. I was on vacation. Vacation was good. But then, you know, you, you get overwhelmed coming back from vacation. Uh, it's now Thursday. I feel like I got my swagger back. So, so I'm pumped and really excited about our podcast guest today. Yeah, we got Kirby. Um, he's uh, not only in uh, one of our um, mentorship groups, the 8020 Academy, but he's also a West Point grad like you and I. Uh, so we're super fortunate to have him on. Kirby, how are you doing? Awesome. Yeah, it's great to be here, guys. I am a huge fan of your show and everything that you guys are doing. So um, I, uh, I I love being here. It's uh, I just listened to the the Austin episode that, that you guys put out. I, f- I forget his last name, but Lenny. man, I love that episode. That was uh, I agreed with so many things on there. So if you're listening to this and haven't checked out that one, that's a great one. Yeah, he 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 was great. Tons of energy, right? Yeah, uh, I love his energy. You, you, it's it's like contagious. You're like, I I know if I'm with this guy, I'm gonna succeed. It's it's great. Exactly. So uh, Kirby, we've talked about uh, short term rentals, right? Like you are you're the short term rental guy, which I'm super uh, excited to get into. I know you got a course coming up that that we're going to get into, but uh, let, let's just start about the journey a, a little bit, right? And and the reason I want to start with the journey, usually we start with just what you're doing today, but because you're the first first guy we've had on to really dig into short term rentals. Like, how did you end up there? You said you had a long-term rental portfolio and then you've recently sold that off and you're just going all in on short-term rentals. So I'd like to hear your story a little bit and kind of how you got to this point. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So, I mean, I'll, I'll go way back to start. Um, so I, I kind of growing up had a little bit of a, a rich dad, poor dad experience myself, um, not not as extreme as, as the book, but, um, you know, my, my dad and my mom growing up, I got to see kind of, uh, a a big juxtaposition in two different types of, um, occupations, I guess. So my dad, he was a director of a park district, very successful, but it was like, it was a government job, um, and a very secure job. Um, and I got to see kind of the pros and cons of that. And then my mom owned her own insurance brokerage, and she was an entrepreneur. She ate what she killed, started with absolutely nothing, um, and just went out and started writing insurance plans for small businesses. Um, and so, you know, her her job was much more flexible, but also it was um, not as secure, I guess, or not, you know, not that secure nine to five that you would um, imagine. So growing up, I was really attracted to her line of work. You know, that whole thing of like, the harder you work, the more it's going to pay you as opposed to that, um, you know, a, a fixed amount that, no, you know, no matter how many hours you work, you're going to get paid the same. So, um, so I knew I was going to be an entrepreneur, wanted to serve in the military. My dad was like, you know, um, if you're going to go in the military, you might as well be an officer because they don't do anything. They just sit around <laughs> and tell people what to do. Um, so he obviously was enlisted. Um, so I played football at the time and applied to West Point, got in the back door through football, um, went to prep school for a year and then got up to West Point. And I think it was my fourth day at West Point. I got cut from the football team. So it was a a long, illustrious football career (laughs) at West Point. Uh, Thanks, Coach Barry. Um, He went on to win one football game while I was there. So um, that's a nice gig. That's a good gig. (laughs) (laughs) I told him people, he kept me. You know, right? Um, it made all the difference. Go. That's right. So, anyways, uh, fast forward. Get out of West Point. I read Rich Dad Poor Dad. It re- really resonated with me, and I bought a a rental property in El Paso, where I was first stationed. Um, and then I went out from there to buy several more um, in El Paso, and then in Hawaii when I got stationed there. And I knew it was something I was going to do full time when I got out. And then I got out in 2011, and um, I realized that buying rental properties with conventional financing like I had previously wasn't going to work because I no longer had a W2. So um, so I just started flipping because I thought, you know, this is the way you make money in real estate if you don't have access to long-term financing. Um, and at the time, they didn't have these 30-year fixed interest loans for LLCs, for investment properties on single mm-hmm. family homes. Like that just didn't exist. Now you can go out and get a 4% loan on any street corner practically for 30 years fixed on a, on a rental property, which is incredible. It changes the game. So 
I started flipping and we ended up flipping. I partnered with two friends from high school and we flipped about 70 properties around Chicago from 2011 to 2016. And I looked up in 2016 after having built this business with, you know, a bunch of employees, we had 12 or 13 employees. We had a, a pretty decent size office. We had, um, you know, all the things that you think of as a successful business having, and we were invited to speak at a bunch of RIAs and different events and stuff. And because people were recognizing us as being really successful. And I looked up and, and looked at my finances and realized that literally I was not in any better position than had, than when I first started five years previously. And I, and we made millions, like we we're a seven figure business, which everyone talks about being a seven figure business. Um, and so uh, but we spent just as much because as we were growing, we got up to $10,000, $20,000 of marketing per month. We we're hiring more people to field all the calls from all the yellow letters that we were sending out. Then we needed project managers to manage all the projects. At, at our peak, we had 22 different projects going at, at one time, some under contract to buy, some under rehab, and some you know, on the back end to sell. But it became this, and, and I wasn't doing any of the fun stuff that I had been doing when, when we first started, you know, when we first started with our first project, it was awesome. Like I was on site with the contractors. I was talking to sellers. I was doing all this fun stuff. By the end, I was just managing people problems, complaints by our staff, complaint, you know, problems with callers with, or with sellers and, you know, all the issues that came up managing all the, the, um, all the, uh, investor relationships. And so I realized I just created this this hamster wheel that I couldn't get off that I was like stuck in and it just consumed way more of my time. And financially I had no assets. Um, you know, so, so at that point I realized I needed to shift into the reason why I got into real estate in the first place. And that was, you know, rental properties, creating financial freedom. And, and so my partners want to continue with flipping. And I said, you know, Godspeed. Um, they, they bought me out of that, that company. And I went on to uh, start Green Vet Homes, which was my, my rental company. And I, I switched strategies at that point. Um, and I'll, I'll come up for Aaron and uh, see if there's anything that uh, you guys want to ask before I move on. Well, before we get into the short-term rentals and your current biz, um, I, I had a thought and a question. So when your first year flipping houses right? Doing, um, just get, try to get cash in your pocket, right? Right. There probably was a point where you and your two buddies did all the work yourselves, which you kind of alluded to. Mm-hmm. And then you probably did like five or 10 of them. And at that point, you're probably very profitable, I would imagine, right? Mm-hmm. What, when did you decide to scale and maybe what regrets do you have um, through that process? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that we were, I wouldn't say we were very profitable. We, so like the first one, for instance, we we bought a property. It ended up being a great flip. It went super quick because we were like all over it. We were visiting the property every day, making sure every detail was taken care of all over the contractors. Um, and we made like 40 grand on it, um, which was awesome. But that was, you know, three, four months later when we sold it. And that 40 grand paid for all the expenses over the last three or four months, you know, because it's divided three ways. You got taxes, you got all the overhead. So So then we started doing multiple at the same time. So um, cause we thought, you know, if, if we, we have to, you know, in order to, to create more revenue. Um, so it was always like, um, it, we, we scaled out of this need or this, um, fear, I guess that it, this isn't enough to sustain us what we're doing. So obviously the answer is higher end projects. So we moved from the South side to the North side of Chicago and started doing a million dollar luxury type houses. Um, and we needed to do more. So we brought on staff to be able to get more that got us into a whole nother set of problems because, you know, million plus dollar buyers have a $50,000 punch list after they get the property under contract that they want you to take care of. Um, there's, they're just much more picky. It's just a totally different game that we didn't anticipate. Um, but, uh, so I guess to answer your question, it was always the scaling was out of number one. It was because everyone said that's what you're supposed to do to be successful. Um, and number two, it was because um, we just knew that what we're doing right now wasn't enough to get ahead. And we thought the answer to get ahead was just bigger and more. So I want to double down on that a little bit because 
I feel like we might be on that same trajectory. Hopefully we're not, right? <laughs> but we are like scale, scale, scale. We're doing things virtually, which hopefully cuts down our expenses. Yep. Uh, we're using, um, you know, uh, uh, a lot of foreign virtual assistants that hopefully cuts down our expenses. But every time we're growing, I have this voice in my head that says, hey, we need to make sure we don't go along the same trajectory Kirby did, where he's like, hey, we got bigger, but the, bo- the bottom line uh, didn't really grow, right? So I've asked you this multiple times, but let's do it on the air here. How can we make sure that we don't make the same mistake as we look to scale? Yeah, it's so the, the main thing is I just look at profit and I look at also my return on time now too. Um, because that was the, the, the big thing we were doing these, these luxury flips that one of the things I didn't anticipate is I needed to be on site way more than I was for a 200, $300,000 flip. Those are cookie cutter decisions. You know, as long as it's neutral decisions, it, you know, it, it meets the requirements for most buyers. They're happy with it. You're going to be okay. For a million plus dollar house, at least in that market, that's a high end house. Um, it you know you really you bring in a designer. The details have to be perfect, and so it didn't scale. Um, number one, so my return on time wasn't wasn't uh, in sync, and then number two is just we didn't pay close attention to the the profit. We just kept thinking as long as we're growing, as long as we're scaling, then we're good, um, and we'll it'll all work itself out. And, and that just isn't, you, you have to, on a monthly basis. Now I sit down with my bookkeeper and I know exactly how much I've spent, how much I've made and how much profit there is. And, you know, and it's not like you're always going to be profitable, but you, you can at least plan then and know, okay, I wasn't this month because I did this, but I'm going to be really profitable next month because I've got this coming up or whatever. But we were kind of just operating, you know, and it just had grown so quickly and so big that that we didn't have a good handle on where everything was and what our profit margin was. So now you're let's let's go back to the short term rental side of things. So you did the hustle, you did the hamster wheel, you slowed it down. You were in long term rentals. Yeah. Now you've decided to pivot into short term rentals. So take us through that decision and how that's going right now. Yeah. So that and that was uh, kind of two. Two transformations there. So when I started Green Vet Homes in 2016, um, it, I just found out about this voucher program that that provides a voucher similar to a Section 8 voucher to homeless veterans. And I was like, this is awesome. Um, you know, it, it made sense to me. Uh, and, you know, being a veteran myself, I was like, uh, you know, I, I felt like I would have the rapport with with the homeless vets and, and I, I wanted to get involved. So um, I found out everything I possibly could about it, kind of built my business around it. So I started buying, rehabbing, renting, and refinancing properties specifically for homeless vets in this program. So I met the, the woman who runs it in Chicago or in Cook County, out right outside of Chicago um, in all the, the suburbs around Chicago uh, where I was buying. And basically I would let her know, I'm, I just found a house. I'm going to, it's a three bedroom. I'm fully re- renovating it. I'll need, you know, or it, it'll be ready for a veteran who has a three bedroom voucher in the next four months, three months, whatever. Um, and so uh, she would start to line somebody up, a veteran up to, to move in. And so started going through this and it, and it worked really well. And so I did research, found areas where the, the price points were low, but the rent rates were high. Um, and I looked at a spreadsheet and I was like, all right, if I have no overhead, I'm not going to get an office. Kind of like you said, everything's going to be virtual. I'm going to pay. Now I'm paying attention to my overhead. I'm going to do what I can do myself and then hire when it's absolutely necessary. Um, and I looked at a spreadsheet and I was like, all right, if I can do 24 of these projects, um, and each one, I, I build in $40,000 of equity by, by burring it. And each one creates $500 of cash flow. Then at the end of this, and if I do one every other, or uh, what was it? It was one a month. Yeah, it was one a month for two years is what my plan was. So for two years, I can do 24 properties. At the end of it, I'll have a million dollar net worth and I'll have $12,000 of income coming in forever. And so it was very like elementary math. It was just like, um, but I was like, this is my plan. And so, and I'm not going to take on any overhead along the way. So I uh, started doing that. And about two years later, I had 26 uh, units and 
one of them was an 11 unit apartment. So, um, it wasn't exactly how I planned it out with single family homes, but, uh, but it was basically right there. Um, and, but it was very sporadic, um, and it was very management intensive. Um, and so I tried to find managers, but it, you know, with it being vouchers, uh, it was very management intensive. So at the same time I was moving over to Northwest Indiana, which is an area where it doesn't work as well. Um, there's just not the demand and the payment, uh, is much lower. And so I, I wanted to find something else that provided really high cash flow, um, and, and, you know, was, was still, I could still be accumulating assets with the same type of, you know, low price point to, to high cash flow, And so that's when I, I got into short-term rentals. Before we get into four? The, no, I have, to, I have to ask a question. So f- you said 40 grand forced equity mm-hmm. and or forced appreciation and $500 cash flow. How are you finding, that's a good deal, man. Yeah. Like, like no matter what way you shake it, that's a good deal. How are you finding them at that time? Uh, initially it was my wife driving me, uh, and I would get out of the car and put up bandit signs uh, on the side of the road. I'd use zip ties and that way they'd stay up as long as possible. And they worked really well in the South suburbs of Chicago. Um, and so I got some of the absolute best deals from bandit signs because the only people that call you from bandit signs are people who either have distress in their life or there's a distressed property. You know, um, it's people who don't want to list on the MLS. So, you know, that, that was the the main way I was finding deals. And then once I started doing a lot of deals in the same area, I was only looking in three communities where the price points were, were low and the rent rates were high. Um, then people started to know that I was looking there. They started referring more deals to me. Um, and I, I didn't have to do bandit signs as much, but, but that was, that was my main marketing strategy. I like it. One of the things Frank and I have talked about, and I think we, um, we have these aspirations that there's a way to fix class D housing in America. Okay. And I'm going to ask you a big question, but you seem more qualified than us. So I want your insight. Right. So we have a, B, C, and D class of houses out there. Right. A, I always say are where the doctors live. B is where the teachers live. C is where the plumbers live. And D is where, you know, uh, uh, could be dangerous at night. Right. And generally, as real estate investors, we're told to stay away from class D houses, right? Like management intensive, you're going to have to go through evictions. Like, uh, you know, uh, a lot of times those houses aren't going to appraise. So just stay away from them. And, that, and that's fine. Right. But Frank and I have talked a bunch about like, what if there is a solution to inject cash into some of these communities and help some of these communities turn around? So how do you think this is my big question time. How do you think America can tackle some of the, the class D issues with, with housing in real estate investing and in lending? Do you have any big thoughts there? It's a big question, man. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I, and I, I do have some thoughts. Um, I think, so for me, it, it was a very fine line between class C and class D um, where, where I was investing. I was in, I, I felt class C, it was kind of on the border of some areas that would definitely be class D. Um, and the only reason that it worked, this model worked really well for me is because there was government intervention, really. I mean, that, that the, the rent rates were artificially much higher than they would have been had I rented to a market rate tenant. And that was because most landlords, you know, heard homeless veteran. And they just automatically said no, because PTSD, alcohol, drugs, whatever they thought was going to be come into their house. Um, and so they didn't want to do it. And so they had to incentivize landlords to do it with a high, a little bit higher rent rate. Um, so that, so from a, from just a, without any government intervention, I think it would be very difficult, but even with government intervention, I don't think it's necessarily like I was doing it because I had a passion for helping vets. There's other landlords that would do it and do the absolute bare minimum on the house to get it to pass the safety standards and get a homeless vet in there. And then they just collected a check. So, um, I think, you know, I think it's obviously if it was an easy answer, it would have already been solved, but I think it's much, a much bigger structural issue in terms of, you know, there, there needs to be a, a lot of work before it gets to that point, because once it's class D, the price points are at a point where even if you rehab it, 
there's there's it's worth way less than than what you're putting into it. So that's why these these places just sit there. If if there was value in it, it wouldn't matter how dangerous it what it is. There there's investors that would go in there, but if you're buying a house for 20 grand and you put 50 grand into it to rehab it and it's worth 30 grand, then it just doesn't, the economics don't make sense. So that's why the government jumps in and tries to get involved. But, you know, I think it's got to go back to why did it become a class D, you know, area in the first place and start to address those issues, which are a lot of times family issues and, and other issues that lead to that place instead of trying to address the, uh, manifestation of those issues, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's, it's like, it's like we do a good job of subsidizing cash flow, mm-hmm. right? Meaning like you can cash flow because they're providing rental payments for the disabled veteran or the section eight tenant. Right. Right. But there's no one subsidizing the equity and that's actually the problem, right? Yeah. Like the equity in a $50,000 home in 2008 is still worth $50,000 in 2021. Right. Yeah. That's the yeah. problem. So it's like, how do you, I, I was telling John, like, how do lenders with government backing, like actually inject liquidity into that market until that happens? Like, it's just no landlord is going to drop 20 grand on a kitchen. It's not right. happening. Right. Exactly. Can't happen. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, yeah, it's, I mean, so I think there's, there's gotta be more of a focus on, on the, the issues that lead to that, that place, because it's, it's so hard to fix once, once you're already there. I, I think that was that was a great answer, and I know that was a big question. Um, and we don't have to solve all the world's problems today, but let's try to solve uh, how does one get into short-term rentals? Let's start start with your story. So you, you yeah. make the switch, you start deciding, hey, it's time to get into short-term. Tell me about it. Yeah, so we moved over to Northwest Indiana, like I talked about, which is about an hour outside of, this, of Chicago. And we bought, as a, a good rehabber would, a really piece of crap house on Lake Michigan. So it was right on the beach, um, overlooking Lake Michigan. Um, but it was like all original 1972 from when they built it. Um, and it needed a lot. So, so we're gutting this house anyway, and it's got a walkout basement and we're like, why don't we, it's unfinished. Why don't we just spend 30,000 more, turn it into a one bedroom apartment and try this Airbnb thing. Like, uh, you know, I keep hearing how profitable it can be. The problem, the reason I think a lot of people have that same feeling, like I should do this. And then they look at Airbnb and they're like, okay, one property rents for a hundred, one property rents for 300. Some are booked, some aren't. If I put money into something, how do I know it's going to rent? And so we're, we're just like, why not start with our own house? We'll spend 30 grand. The house is probably worth 30,000 more now that we've got a one bedroom apartment in the basement. So we're really not out anything if it doesn't work. We got it done. We put it on Airbnb and it was like crazy demand. Like, I mean, immediately just messages coming in, bookings coming in. And looking back, we could have optimized our price a lot better um, and made a lot more money. But um, that, I mean, the way it was, it paid for three quarters of our mortgage. Just We, we only listed it in the summer because my wife was real We had a steep driveway. She thought, you know, with the ice, you know, someone was going to slip down the driveway and sue us. So, um, she, so we, she just wanted to rent it in the summer. We rented in the summer, it paid for three quarters of our mortgage for the whole year. Um, and we were like, this is insane. Um, and it wasn't even something we were expecting. Uh, and, and it impacted our life almost not at all because there was a separate entrance. People came in and went, we got to meet a couple of cool people that came and, um, you know, we screened the guests really hard. So, so that's when I was like, we got to scale this. And, um, and I started doing it in the nearby town in Michigan city, Indiana, um, where the price points again are very affordable, low taxes. Um, but there's a huge demand for Airbnb, like most places. Um, and so I started buying single family homes and scaling it. And once I, I started that process, I realized this is where my passion is. I love providing just an amazing experience for people. I'm slightly OCD and I like to my properties to be kept absolutely pristine at all times. So when I was rehabbing them, making them that way, and then renting them to a homeless veteran, sometimes they would get destroyed and it would like drive me up a wall. So I realized that wasn't the strategy for me long-term um, and it was very hard to manage back in Illinois. So, um, so I decided I'm gonna sell off all, all those properties and take that equity there's a opportunity zone in Michigan city. So I could roll the equity tax free into an opportunity zone investment into some of these properties that I was rehabbing anyway. 
and uh, and say you know not have to pay capital gains on that that money when I was selling off the the rental. So that's uh, that became my new strategy, and I've not looked back. It's just been amazing, and it's it's been a game changer financially for for our family too, because it's you you don't need that many when the cash flow is this high to get to financial freedom. That's interesting. Um, I didn't know that you could do opportunity zone investments on single family homes. You can? Oh yeah. Yeah. As long as you're rehabbing it, you know, you're rehabbing at least 50% of the value of the property than uh, anything, any, any piece of real estate qualifies. That's amazing. That's awesome, man. Um, and uh, so on your, on a, on your cookie cutter, a three bedroom, two bath home in Michigan city, what does that house typically look like from a pricing perspective? And then what return are you aiming to get on your short-term rental? Yeah, I'm, I'm actually, it's funny. I, I, I'm going to do a Facebook live on this uh, next week, but there's a property that was one of the first ones I bought. I bought it for $39,000. Um, the lead came in from a Facebook ad that I had put up um, and it needed rehab. The guy got halfway through rehab and walked away. It needed, I, I put in about 55,000 uh, to rehab it and make it really nice. I mean, really nice finishes. It's a thousand square foot, three bed, one bath home. Um, and this was early on and I, I really didn't know how to run the numbers. So I was just trying to be as conservative as I could. So I, I just assumed that if the average rent was 90 bucks a night, which I knew was very conservative, and at a 66% occupancy, basically 20 out of 30 days are, are booked, um, the numbers still worked. And so that's the way I ran the numbers, um, but it turned out to be much better than that. So that sa- that house as a long-term rental would rent for 900, about 950 uh, a month. You could get 950 to 1100, somewhere in there. Um, but since, since starting to rent that on Airbnb in the winter, I usually get about fifteen to two thousand a month uh, on uh, on that as a as a rental. It's mostly long weekends that I'm renting it out for, um, and then in the summer I'm making about five grand a month in the summer months. Um, and so, obviously, as a short term rental, you have more expenses. You've got your cleaning fees, you've got your utilities, you got to cut the grass, um, but it's minimal expenses. You know, when you think of an extra five times as much cash flow. Um, so, uh, so that's, that, that's generally around where it is that, that one isn't my best performer. Um, you know, I've, I've some of the two units, actually I have two, two units. They've been fantastic. Cause you get three listings out of those. You list each unit individually, and then you list the whole building together as one. And so in the summer, when families travel, they'll pay a lot more to rent the whole building because, um, you know, it's a big group. And, uh, and then in the winter you have the versatility of just renting smaller units to smaller groups that are traveling just for like long weekends and coming to visit the casino or the outlet mall or wineries or whatever. So. So when you underwrite these, these units, do you underwrite them? Do you feel like you can underwrite them with short-term rental projections or is it more conservative to underwrite them? Like, Hey, if we had to convert these to a 12 month rental, is that how you you underwrite them? Uh, and then also, how is your underwriting um, or kind of, you know, for someone not familiar with those terms, how do you looking at the numbers? How has that matured or evolved over the years? Yeah, good question. So, uh, so, so for me being very conservative, that is how I looked at it. Because I, I, you know, especially in the beginning, I didn't know that this would work. So I was like, worst case scenario, I'm going to convert this back to a long-term rental and it, you chalk it up as, you know, lesson learned, but then it took off, you know, not only our house, but then the single first single family house really took off as well. And I was like, you know, this, this works well. So, you know, I like that, that feeling of knowing that in a worst case scenario, you know, COVID number two happens and, you know, Airbnb goes defunct, whatever the situation, um, the, I can convert them all back to long-term rentals and I'm still okay. But, the longer you do it, the more you start to get tempted by the cash flow. <laughs> Cause I look at some other areas. I mean, I, I feel like we're doing very well and it's an extremely affordable area. But you know, you look at areas, other areas that are like uh, beachfront, you know, on the ocean or, you know, Orlando near near the, you know, um, 
Disney World. And some of these, these Airbnbs are just absolutely killing it. Now, a lot of those will not work as long-term rentals. So they were hammered when COVID happened and they had all their guests cancel. They had to carry that. And it's usually a pretty expensive property. Um, but you know, it's kind of a trade-off. So I, I personally recommend that, that, that you, you can use them as long-term rentals, but different people have different, uh, uh, appetites for, for risk. And so, um, and then in terms of how I look at them, it's, it's similar to running, you know, you kind of run it two different ways. So you run it as a real estate investment or the way, the way I look at it, you run it, you run the numbers as a real estate investment first and make sure it works first as a real estate investment. Like if it was a long-term rental, if, you know, are you building equity in it? Does it have stable cash flow? Is this a solid investment? If this new thing, this like Airbnb thing doesn't work out and then you run it as an Airbnb, which is like the icing on the cake, you know? So I look at Airbnb, look at the comps, see what they're renting for. I use conservative numbers and I, you know, and I see what I'll rent for that way. And so usually if it works out well as a a standard solid rental property, long-term rental, it's going to work out really well as a, as a short-term rental. So that's how I look at it. So we're conservative underwriters as well. So we share that trait with you. But one thing I've learned about being a conservative underwriter in 2021 is that if you're too conservative, you get priced out of a lot of deals. Yeah. How have you changed your standards as the market's gotten more competitive? Yeah, it's a great question. I, you know, I've given up some of the equity basically. Um, so I'm still doing rehabs, which I always tell people, the only reason you rehab is to make a whole bunch of equity. Um, because if, if you're basically, if you've got, if there's no equity in it after your rehab, buy something turnkey off the market. So I, I've bought a, a, a few turnkey properties, which I said I'd never do because I've rehabbed over a hundred properties. And it's like a sin to me to, to buy something turnkey, but I've accumulated equity just in buying it turnkey and not having the downtime of doing the rehab. I immediately put it on Airbnb, started cash flowing at a, at a high rate. It actually worked out really well buying turnkey. And then I'm also taking on some rehabs that um, have less equity in them. They'll still have equity, but less than typically I would have in the past um, just to kind of keep my guys, guys moving. But I don't need to do... The great thing about this is you know, I, I ran the numbers and I was like, all right, each of these conservatively on average is going to make a thousand bucks of cash flow a month. So I'm like, if I can get to eight, um, then I feel really good from a cash flow standpoint. I've got a whole bunch of equity in the properties. And I was still working at a W2 job for, you know, I was a uh, CFO of Bunker Labs for the last four years. And, and, um, but I was, you know, I, I knew I was going to go back to doing real estate full time. And so, um, I was like, you know, at, at, if I get to eight of these properties, I'll feel really good about the income, just supporting my family. And I can, it frees me up to do whatever I want basically. So I can, I can leave the, the full-time role. That's why I'm de- I've developed this program. I've worked super hard on this program, probably harder than I should have. Um, on this program to, to teach others to do this exact same thing, how to get their first short-term rental. So it takes people who are working a day job, they, they have no passive income, and it shows them how to find, buy, and set up their first really high cash flowing short-term rental. Because that first one is like the, the hardest. Once you have the first one done, you've got a blueprint, you've got you know a template that you can just kind of knock it out. So if your financial freedom number is 8,000, and each one is producing 1,000, you just do the exact same thing eight times, and you're financially free. Yes. And then what did, what does your funding look like now um, for for these, right? And and how are bankers underwriting them? Are they still looking at, you know, 1.25 debt service coverage ratio, or do you have to sell them on, uh, you know, the the short-term rental revenue potential? How does that work? Yeah, that's, that's a good question too. It's so to buy them up front, since the majority have been rehabs, it's been, you know, my money equity from properties I've sold, or it's been private money. And they're, they're pretty low price point properties. So it's not like I needed a massive amount of, of private money. Um, so I'd, I'd buy them, rehab them with the private money. Uh, usually with most lenders, it's a six month seasoning. So as soon as you hit the six month mark, they'll appraise the property and then they give you 75% of the appraised value. So a lot of them 
do want to see a lease and some of them don't really care about the lease. So, you know, co-hosting is a big thing where somebody signs a lease and then, and then they're uh, technically renting it under them. Um, so you can, you can get creative and, and get a long-term lease by partnering with somebody. Um, but uh, it just depends on the lender if they even care about that. Cause more and more are saying, we'll just accept the short-term rental revenue. Um, and, and they can see, they'll just look at the Airbnb history basically. Gotcha. And then, uh, what about regulations? How do regulations come into play? And are you worried about them at all? We did an offsite in Savannah and love Savannah. We're like, dude, we got to come up. We, we got to get a bunch of short-term rentals here. Yeah. This place is awesome. <laughs> Talk to one of our buddies and he's like, yeah, there's some regulations that you guys might want to dig into before uh, you get too excited. So how does that come into play for you? Yeah, it's, that's another one that is a huge concern for people. Um, and it, and it should be. So, so basically like 80% of the U S right now has either made a regulation that is very easy to, um, to follow almost like there's, there's no restriction or they haven't made a ruling on it. Then there's like 15% that have made rulings that are, um, you know, a little bit more stringent, um, that, but you're still able to do Airbnbs. You just have to follow the guidelines. And then there's 5% like Denver, Vegas. Um, it sounds like Savannah. I haven't looked at Savannah, but, um, uh, where they say no, no Airbnbs. Um, now if you go on Airbnb and go search Denver or search Las Vegas, there's 300 results that come up, which is the maximum number of results that, will come up on Airbnb. So somehow, some way hosts have figured out a way to still do Airbnb in every single market that exists. Um, so, so not that I'm saying that you should go break the law, but there's a lot of times there's ways to work around it with co-hosts or with creative strategies. Now, if, if I'm investing in, and I'm like picking a market, I'm not going to choose Denver or Las Vegas to invest in because why fight uphill the whole way, it, but it's, it's such a hard thing to, um, enforce that, you know, the Airbnb police don't show up typically in the middle of the night, you know, but if something happens, they will, like if, you know, if there's a complaint or something, so why, why even get in that situation when 80% of the country says it's either fine or, you know, they haven't made a ruling and, and, they, it's not an issue enough that they even needed to make a ruling. Um, so, so I, I mean, it, it can happen and, and it can change, but there's so many, especially the bigger markets have pretty much all made a ruling one way or the other at this point. But I like to focus on the tertiary markets, the areas where, you know, it's out, I'm an hour outside of Chicago and I'm buying properties at $39,000, but there's still a massive demand every single day in the summer. I'm booked up on all my properties. So you don't have to be in like downtown Chicago to get your properties rented. Why fight with all the bureaucracy there when you can be here where there's, there's no restrictions at all. Yeah. And it's funny. And the public has generally accepted that for a full hotel room, you're going to spend a hundred bucks a night. Right. Yeah, yeah. If you're in downtown Denver and it's a dump, it's still it's going to be a hundred bucks a night. And if you're yeah. in Michigan City, it's a hundred bucks a night. Right. <laughs> yeah. So like, it's yeah. pretty awesome. Um, yeah. So I'm a student. I I call you. I'm like Kirby. I, I need help. I want to get in the SDR game. Um, it's month number one. Like, what steps are you advising them to take days zero through like day thirty or maybe day mm-hmm. sixty? And then how long do you expect them to have to execute those steps to like get some results, maybe get a deal or, or have their first rental on the market? Like, what do you teach? Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. I, I've, I interviewed uh, about 55 people who are in my Facebook group um, who, uh, you know, are interested or have done short-term rentals and tried to figure out like, what are the biggest roadblocks? What's the fastest way to get you from not having a property to having a property? Um, because, what I've seen is that there's a there's a lot of short-term rental programs out there. A lot of them will overcompensate with not having a transformation with a whole bunch of information. So they'll say, we're going to have a hundred modules that give you everything you ever needed to know about Airbnb. But you know, I could go to Google for that. Obviously that hasn't worked. So I set this program up very intentionally. It's a cohort style program. So it's going to start September 9th. Um, 
And we will go through week by week together over a six week period and it builds on itself. And so I basically am just going to go over the things that you need to actually get a property over six weeks. So it is like going to be my um, total intention, everything I have to make sure that everyone who goes through this ends up with a high cash flowing short-term rental at the end of it. So that's, that's the whole point behind it. Obviously it can only scale. So, so big, you know, I can't have 500 people in that because once a week we'll, we'll do the the lesson. Um, and I'll start with like, what is your goal? Like where, you know, to people ask me all the time, where should I invest? The biggest factor in that is you as the investor, like what, what do you want out of this? Like you have to figure out your, at the end of it all, like, what do you want your life to look like? And then I can start to narrow down places to invest that, that will determine whether you should invest remotely or invest, you know, be more hands-on, you know, and should you invest in a high cash flowing market or maybe more appreciation and that sort of thing. So, so we'll figure that out, go through how to actually find deals. Like, so identify the market, how to find deals within the market, how to actually close on the deal, how to get the financing for the deal, then how to set it up, how to create like a, a awesome uh, listing that stands out, how to set up your profile on Airbnb, and then how to automate some of this stuff like cleaners. That's another big thing. People are like, I don't have a cleaning crew or I don't have a handyman. Those are two key people that you need. And then how to automate the whole guest um, communication process to make it as as hands-off as it can be. It'll still be somewhat hands-on, but um, there's there's things you can do to make it much, much easier. And then who is your ideal student? Uh, who, who of our listeners uh, are, are you really speaking to here? It's, it's somebody who's working a full-time job um, and, or, you know, it's, it could be somebody who's, who's flipping because that for me was, was a full-time job. And I, I wanted a lifeline at the time. Um, I wish I would have known about this and just skipped um, flipping altogether because I could have been financially free years and years ago. And, um, but uh, you know, so somebody working a full-time job, they've, they've heard about Airbnb. They thought about it for a while maybe. Um, but they just are confused where to start. Like, how do I run the numbers? How do I know once I buy something that somebody's actually going to rent it and how many nights are they going to rent it from me? And, and all the questions that pop up and what I've, what I've experienced is that there's always like one or two things that come up for people. Like, you know, how do I run the numbers? How do I find cleaners? that stop them from moving forward. And they've thought about this for a year. And during that year, they could have made $50,000 of cash flow on a property potentially while, but there's these little things that are easy to overcome if you have the answer. So, um, so it's ideal for someone like that, that really is like, all right, I need somebody to walk me through this now and get me to the point where I have one of these done. So then I can move forward and, and scale it from there. That's awesome. That's awesome, man. So um, what else besides real estate? We, we, have, we only have like 10 minutes left. I wanted to ask you, what other stuff besides real estate are you working on right now? Like, I feel like you're an interesting dude. Like you might have a book, you might have <laughs> like a not-for-profit, you know, you, uh, yeah. like a skincare um, product you're selling. Like what's going on? How can yeah. we be as handsome as you? That's what Frank is asking you right yeah, now. Yeah, <laughs> like if anyone's watching the video, it's like John and I are about 10 years younger than Kirby, but we I, I at least look like five years older. So you I to, always make you this to joke. throw that in there. Yeah, always. Yeah, I, I, I actually just had uh, my surprise 40th birthday this past weekend. My wife threw it for me three months early. So it was really a surprise. Um, and so I'm, I'm right on the cusp of being uh, 40 years old. So um, but no, I, I have plenty of gray hairs. They're all, I guess in the back, you can't see them with this lighting or whatever, but, um, yeah, I mean, so I, I just left a nonprofit, um, that I was super passionate about. It helped better and start businesses. Um, I, I thought it was, it helped me tremendously when I was getting started. Um, but that it, part of the reason why I left the nonprofit is because, um, we just bought a 45 acre farm. Um, so, that's where I live right now is in a farmhouse that was built in 1853. So prior to the, the Lincoln administration, um, and it's, uh, it needed a lot of work. So we, uh, we gutted the house initially. The intent behind it is this works so well for us. The short-term rental model worked well for us in our basement in the previous single family house that why don't we scale it on, uh, something on our, on our personal residence, but on a bigger scale. So, um, we started getting into this whole concept of land hacking, um, 
and which is basically where you find land with a house on it. So it qualifies for conventional financing. And then you buy it, um, you, you buy it using conventional finance. They, they appraise the house and it just happens to come with a whole bunch of land that you can do a ton of rentals on. So that's what we're working on now. We got the whole house rehab. We got the barn. There's a hundred year old barn here that we rehabbed and uh, put these big windows in. And um, it's, I think it's a perfect place to have a wedding. Um, and we've actually rented our house out on Airbnb a couple times now, um, just to test the waters and it's worked out great. Um, people want to get out of the city and they come out here just for like a long weekend and they, they get to pet our chickens and, um, hang out on the farm. So, uh, so the, the next phase is to build out like yurts or tiny houses or cabins or, um, some type of small rentals that, you know, it basically it's a huge hay field surrounded by woods and there's a river that runs through the corner um, that the salmon actually run on from Lake Michigan. So, um, so I think it'd be a perfect place for people to get away, come out to the farm, eat some homegrown vegetables that we're growing and pet the chickens and goats and, uh, hang out for the weekend. So, um, so that's the, the thought. Dude, I'm, I'm sold. Like Frank, next <laughs> offsite, we're going to Kirby's, that's man. Right. I want to pet some chickens. You know? That's actually there a great go. idea because we, we travel for our offsites because none of us live within an hour of each other. So we always yeah. fly. That's a great idea. We should do it. We actually should yeah. do that. That's awesome, man. Come on out. You're yeah, doing it, dude. No. That's that's creative. That's that's pretty cool. I got we got to put up a few rentals first before you get here. But um, that's the that. So so right now the process we're at or the the, the uh, step in the process is working with the county. So it's every county's different on what they'll allow. So we've got to get a variance to allow us to do something here. Um, and so we're working on like a venue slash either campground or something a little bit more, uh, permanent to allow more permanent structures. So. Excellent. And here's, here's my, uh, question for you is one of the things Frank and I are all about scale where maybe we, maybe we need to trip, uh, like you did a little bit to, uh, be grounded, but Frank and I are like, if we can't do it a hundred times, we might as well not do it once. Right. So, uh, one of the things we've talked about is creating a short-term rental fund, right? Like raising uh, a couple million dollars, picking a city and being able to have some uh, economics of scale or right to, uh, to, to grow out a solid uh, short-term rental fund. What are your, what are your thoughts there? Is that something um, that we should pursue? And our, our assumptions there is we're pretty good at finding deals. We're pretty good at using virtual assistants to, to run a lot of those systems. Do you think that's a, that's a feasible business model? So, I mean, so by the way, like I'm not down on scale. Like I know it probably sounds that way. I I just know me like that. And that's been the biggest game changer is getting to know yourself. Because initially when I got into real estate, I listened to gurus. I went to every one of the, the seminars. I signed up for a bunch of courses, like, and I was just listening to anyone that I thought looked successful and they were all flashy guys standing in front of their fancy cars. And they're saying like, this is what you got to do to be successful. You got to grow and you got to, you know, do all. And, and then halfway through, I realized that that guy is not me. I, I have no desire to be like that dude. Um, and like, if I can be hanging out on a farm with my kids and drive an old pickup truck, like that's really successful for me. Like that's, that's my picture of success and not have to go to work in the morning. Like I don't, like I don't have a job. <laughs> I, I get to do what I want, set my own days and, and I don't have a car payment, you know? And so like, those are the, so, so you have to define what success is for you. So like, you know, if scale excite, like you can do a lot with scale, like, you know, that I couldn't do because it's, I'm a, a solopreneur. So there's a lot more impact you can make with scale, but it has to align with your personality. So that being said, like, I, I think, uh, I think it's a, a super smart thing to do. I've had a few people on my podcast actually who are buying small commercial buildings and converting them into Airbnbs. And it, the numbers are insane because the rent rates go through the roof and, and then the value is based on the rent rate. So, um, so I think it's really smart, a smart strategy. I always teach people because I'm working with people who are starting with their first one, that they have a huge competitive advantage over like the evolves of the world because they can be hands-on. They can provide an intimate experience. Our guests love our place. Our, the feedback is raving because we're, we like have handwritten notes. It's like, here's all the places we like to go in town. There's a story about us. There's a whole history of the entire city that we put up on these canvases in each one of our units. Like all these little touches that 
you know, once you're at scale, just don't make any sense anymore. Um, so, um, so just know your business model. Somebody once told me that you can either be a super host or you can have a successful short-term rental business. And I was like, well, what is that? Like, aren't successful people super hosts? And, and his point, I think it was like, I don't, I don't think it's actually factual, but I think his point was like that to be a super host, you have to meet all these guidelines that Airbnb is like, they want you to be hands-on like a super host, like never cancel on someone, all these things that are very specific to, to have a successful short-term rental business at scale. You're not going to be able to adhere to all those individual super host things. So um, I think you still probably could if you did it the right way, but, but it's, you know, you have to identify what your business model is, what you're okay with. Like, and, and then, um, yeah, I think it, I think it absolutely could work really well. The numbers are just, they don't make any sense right now. There's a huge commit, uh, supply and demand differential that doesn't, it's just not met there right now. Um, there's way more people who want to use Airbnb than there's enough properties on Airbnb right now. So it makes it, uh, very profitable. Don't be too loud, Kirby. Her BlackRock's going to buy up all the single-family housing even faster. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> right. Um, I think that's. I feel like that's all we got for today. Is that right, John? Are we done? Yeah, I, I just want to um, ask ask Kirby one more question. Which oh, is, sure. You know, the, the the money question, which is where can people find you? And I would also say um, that uh, uh, you know we we really like Kirby, right? We are giving him, I, I don't know the specifics of his course, but this is what I can guarantee. He's a high character guy, right? We, we talk about character and how, unfortunately, a lot of uh, real estate investors need to work on their character. I absolutely trust uh, Kirby's character and I'm sure he's going to give you an awesome experience, awesome education. Uh, so we don't get any financial kickbacks. We don't want any financial kickbacks from Kirby, but we highly, highly recommend if you're interested in short-term rentals to check out his course, I guarantee you it, it'll be top notch. But Kirby, if if someone is interested in, in your course and some of your materials, where can they find out more about you, man? Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, I, it's real simple. I'm going to be doing a webinar here um, soon and, and uh, it's on August 9th, I believe, live. Uh, so if you just go to livingoffrentals.com backslash webinar. So Living Off Rentals is my uh, platform and uh, backslash webinar. Um, you can get the information right there. You can register for the webinar and I'm going to go over my process basically on the webinar. I'm going to go over my process for finding short-term rentals, buying short-term rentals and setting them up. Um, and so if you want to find out more, I'd say, you know, join the webinar. If it's after August 9th, you're listening to this, you can still go to that, uh, that site and the, the webinar will still be living there, the recording. So you can check it out there. Um, and, uh, yeah. And then reach out on any social platform, you know, my, my email is Kirby at greenvethomes.com. Um, that's my real estate investing company. And so uh, happy to, to chat with anyone. Awesome. Really appreciate your time, Kirby. Um, you know, I, I think we learn from you every time we, we talk. So uh, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Uh, Frank, take us away, brother. Just one more thank you to Kirby. You're an awesome guest. We love having you on. And I'm sure we'll have you on before the end of Q3. Peace, brother. Thanks, man.